Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Would you turn with me to the Joseph story, Genesis 37, and let's read the beginning of that story. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Not a very good beginning for a great story, is it? Will you pray with me? Father, if we know our hearts tonight, we would like for you to glorify your name in our midst. That name which is above every name. We never understand or get over the mystery of it, but we know that when we meet together, in your name and with your people, you always come, and you are the need of our heart. So we would ask you to do it again, to give yourself to us, to speak to us, so that tonight we hear something more than a human voice. We hear an inner voice. We hear the voice of our Father speaking to us about his Son through the Holy Spirit, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. There's no question but that the story of Joseph is one of the great literary pieces in the literature of the world. I think you will find any person who is an expert in terms of literature who will acknowledge that. Oftentimes, the writers will speak of it as a novelette, a short novel, a fictitious story that has a great line to it, plot, and uh, something that holds you and brings you to a significant climax. But the story of Joseph is not fiction. The story of Joseph is history, if anything was ever history, because history has a coherence to it and a unity to it. It's significant to me that tonight we're talking about the Joseph story, and the most significant event in the last two weeks happened in terms of Joseph's tomb. Are you aware that it was when... Uh, the Israelis decided to withdraw some of their police and bring them back, and they withdrew from the Joseph's tomb in Nablus. They had an agreement with the Palestinian police that the Palestinian police would protect Joseph's tomb. And when the Israeli police withdrew, a Palestinian crowd gathered, the Palestinian police did not stop them, and they trashed the tomb of Joseph. And so the Israelis said, we thought we had an agreement with them. Apparently, these people do not know how to keep an agreement, 
And that was the beginning of the intensification of the hostile expressions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we have the situation that's in our hands tonight. So the story that we have here to talk about in our three days together is a story, history, yes. It is very pertinent and pertinent tonight. I'd like to talk some tonight about a background and a context for the story of Joseph because I'm convinced that the background and the context is really as as important or maybe more important even than the story of Joseph. You will notice that the scripture indicates that the story of Joseph is not an entity in itself. It is a part of a larger story. It does not stand alone. You will notice that the passage that we read, which is the beginning of the story of Joseph, begins with chapter 37. Chapters 37 to 50 are called the story of Joseph. But chapter 37, the story of Joseph begins with these words. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. So in a very real sense, the Joseph story is a part of the story of Jacob, the man whose name was changed and who gave to his people the name Israel, which is on the front page of all of our newspapers today. You will remember that that story, beginning in 37, ends in chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. And if you will look at the closing three chapters, you will find that chapter 48, Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob, and Jacob blesses and selects the one that will have the priority in the days that are ahead. You will remember that chapter 49 is the blessing of Jacob on his twelve sons. And then, at the end of that chapter, Jacob dies. And in chapter 50, we get the story of his burial and his embalming, and then as an epilogue to Jacob's story, Joseph dies. So you cannot separate the story of Joseph from that larger story, biblically here it is identified as Jacob's, but it is really Abraham's story, isn't it? Because you know enough and I know enough to know that these stories all come together and they are one story, the story of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and what we have is the beginning of the people of God in the Old Testament and uh, Israel, and that is what leads to Jesus Christ and that's what leads to your story in the mind because you and I would not be here tonight if we were not part of this very story that is being told here. Now, why is it so important for us? Let me talk for just a little about the book of Genesis. I never cease to be amazed at the uh, wisdom of God in structuring the scriptures and things that once I just slipped over is meant nothing to me. As the years have passed, they've become more and more significant to me. For a long time, I read the Bible sort of in a smudge. You know, it was all sort of alike. And then one day, I began to see that there is a development in it, and a very important development. And there is much to be learned from the way that the story develops as you get it from the beginning of Genesis on through to the book of Revelation and on to us. Now, the book of Genesis, you know, is the book of beginnings. And it is the story, interestingly enough, not of an institution, not of a nation, not even of a religion. It is a story of some individual person. Biblically, the most important thing that exists is a person. And the story of history is primarily, as far as the scripture is concerned, the story of persons, so that you are as significant as anything that exists because persons are where the value is to be placed, the determinative value in life. And so in the Old Testament or in the all of Scripture, you get as the model for us, not somebody who comes with a lot of knowledge about God, not somebody who comes with a lot of knowledge about Scripture, not somebody who comes toward the end of the revelation so that he can manifest the fullness of grace, as it were, but the model that is given for all of us in Scripture comes from the very beginning. It comes from the, the book of Genesis from Abraham. You will remember that Paul, in the book of Romans, when he looked for a model for us, he picks out 
You read the fourth chapter of Romans, the Roman letter, and Abraham is the model for it. He believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. You will remember that that was the battle cry of the Reformation, and if you're a Protestant tonight, you are here basically because of that. In Galatians, Paul does the same thing. He turns and picks up Abraham as the illustration of the man who lived by grace. It's interesting that the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in listing the great heroes of the faith, the great men of faith, the longest section is given to Abraham. And James, the one who is supposed to have emphasized works as well as faith, when he goes to emphasize the importance of works coming out of faith, he picks up the one that, uh, that Paul picked for the illustration of that we're justified by grace through faith alone. He picks up Abraham as the example of the man whose life is a life of faith and it is illustrated in the results in his life, faith with work. Now, Abraham is uh, not only a man of faith, but he has a particularly intimate relationship with God. I, I love the fact that the first great person in the Scripture is not called a servant of God, he is called a friend of God. Now, oftentimes we think of the Old Testament as a time when the relationship with God would not be as intimate, say, as with a prophet, or as in the New Testament where we know so much about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting that the person in Scripture who is called the friend of God, read it in Isaiah, read it in Chronicles, read it in James, Abraham is called the friend of God. Now, he's not called the servant of God, but he is called the friend. And I remember that on the last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, he turned to his disciples and said, I don't call you servants anymore. You've reached a relationship with me that's much more intimate than I call you friend. So it's interesting that at the end of their life with Jesus before he was crucified, the disciples had reached the place where Abraham began as a friend of God. Now, it's surprising that Abraham is picked out as a model for us, and surprising because of this. You think of the things that he didn't have in his world and that he was not. He was not a prophet, he was not a priest, he was not a king, he never preached a sermon and never heard a sermon preached, and he was never in a corporate worship service. The kind of experience that we had a few moments ago when we were singing in praise and in adoration of God, and you found your heart warmed and stirred by it. Abraham never experienced that anywhere in his life. There is no record in Genesis of him ever experiencing worship with anyone else other than Sarah when God himself came to visit them. You will remember that uh, it was not a real Christian day. There's uh, nothing about monogamy in the book of Genesis. Abraham, you remember, was not monogamous. He had two wives. In fact, he had three. And the possibility is he may have had concubines. I remember how shocked I was when I read that in the Scripture. And I'd been reading it a whale of a long time before I read it. But if you read the story of Keturah, it speaks about his sons, and the text speaks about the concubines that were his. Now, I do not know what that means, except that there it is. But he didn't live in a world like ours. He didn't have the moral background in training and education. He never saw the Ten Commandments. So just let me talk about, we, I, I've said what he wasn't and what he didn't experience, but let me tell you the things he didn't have. He never had a Bible. In fact, he never had a page of Scripture. Two books. One of them is the biography of Hugh Latimer who was an Anglican bishop. And the other is a biography of uh, John Wycliffe. You remember the Bible translator. And he was called in his day in the 14th century in England the Thomas Aquinas of Oxford. He's an incredible man. I come from a Methodist background. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Hugh Latimer and if it weren't for John Wycliffe. And the interesting thing to me is nobody ever talks about these guys. Now, these two books were written by a little Presbyterian missionary who spent her life in uh, Zaire, one of the dumpiest, little, most nondescript-looking ladies you ever bumped into, and one of the jewels of uh, the earth, as far as I'm concerned. 
she's the kind of person that when she was dying with cancer, oh, she smiled and said, in a few days, I'm going to meet Hugh Latimer, and I'm going to find out whether I told it right. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a person like that. She's a marvelous human being. These two books you'll never find in any Christian bookstore. Zonderman couldn't sell them. I think they're masterpieces. I dare you to start, and if you start, if you start with Latimer, you'll finish it. Uh, Wycliffe won't grab you quite as much, probably, but let me say, Wycliffe will give you a feel for a world that didn't have print in it. Can you imagine what it would be like not to have print in your life? But he was responsible for the spreading of the gospel when there was no printing press, and he paid a very high price for it. So just let me say, Abraham had none of these things that we have. He had no church. There was no church. There was no Israel in that day. There was no, let me use the technical term, no cult. There was no religious life. No such thing as baptism. You get to chapter 17 in Genesis before circumcision is introduced. But he was the model and he believed God before he had any of that. There was nothing comparable, of course, to the Lord's Supper. There was nothing comparable to the institution of Christian marriage. There was no sacrificial system. He builds altars and on occasion will make a sacrifice, but it is very rare. And there was no sacrificial system in his life that was a part of his relationship to the Lord God. He did not have the Ten Commandments. There was no priesthood in his day for him. And there were no social institutions to confirm and support his faith in the Lord. And there was not even a state. There was no nation of Israel. But here you've got a guy who is the model for me. And Joseph is a part of that story and fits into it. So I come rather humbly <laughs> to listen to a person who was called a friend of God. And Joseph is in that line and is one of these. You notice it says that the blessing of the Lord was on Joseph. He had that blessing from God on him in a world, and his world was worse than Abraham because of where he was and what he experienced. Now, why are these men picked out as models? It's interesting the things that impress me uh, now that I, I never paid any attention to, uh, you know, for a whale of a long time. Uh, I remember when I came to the place where I decided that the key word in Genesis was walk because you remember the climax of the creation story, not obey, not serve, but walk. Because at the climax of the creation story, God comes down in the cool of the day and walks and talks with Adam and Eve. Enoch walks with God, and you remember one of those conversations, walking conversations didn't end here, it ended in the other world. And Noah, we're told, walked with God. I remember when I saw this, you know, it says that he was a righteous, he was a just and a righteous man, and he uh, walked with God. I always figured that that's why he walked with, was able to walk with God, because he was just and righteous. But you know, the, the indication that I had it in exact reverse. He walked with God, and because he walked with God, he was just and he was righteous. The justice and the righteousness, all of that came out of his personal relationship to the Lord God, not the other way around. And that's why Paul picked him out as the model for it. But there are two expressions in Genesis that I would have never thought about. But you know what they are? I think they explain the whole thing and lay the background for us to understand and appreciate Joseph. Two, let me, I used to teach Hebrew, so let me, uh, one of them is, and it is, and he appeared. And the other one is, and he said. And if you will spot those, you will get the story of Genesis. Let me illustrate. Three times in the life of Abraham, the Lord appeared to him. Twice in the life of, uh, of Isaac, God appeared to Isaac, and once in the life of Jacob. 
Now, I suspect that he may have appeared more, but Moses, in giving us that story, didn't feel it was necessary to tell us except about the high spots. But we have at least those six appearances of God to the patriarchs. Now, it doesn't say that about Joseph. That doesn't mean that he didn't have the intimate relationship with God that Abraham did, because you see the patterns being laid down in Abraham, and you see the fruit of it in the life of a man like Joseph. But the other expression is, and God said. Now, uh, I dare you to take your, your book of Genesis and sit down and start with Genesis 1-1 and underline every time it says, and God said. Because the first thing you're going to find out is that when he speaks, something happens. <laughs> the first one is, and God said, let there be light. And so you get the beginning of the creation. On the six days of the creation, each day God spoke, it says, and God said. And so you get the creative process working its way through. And then you get a seventh expression, which comes on the sixth day where he says, and God said, let us make man in our own image. When God speaks, you can count on something happening. Now, I don't know about you, but that excites me. Because as I read the scriptures, I notice that it excited the prophets because the prophets insist that the difference between their God and an idol is that idols can't talk. Let me read for you. Look with me for a moment at Jeremiah. And you, you, have, to, you have to appreciate the humor of Scripture. Uh, these guys are dealing with incredibly serious things, but you can, you, can feel, you can see the grin on their faces when they do things like this. Chapter 10 of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, you know, was not supposed to be the happy, <laughs> the happy prophet. But listen, hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations. Now, God is saying, you're my people. You're my nation. Don't you learn the ways of the other nations or be terrified by signs in the sky though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples, these nations are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest. A craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon pack, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of kings? This is your due among all the wise men of the nations and all their kings. There is no one like you. You can talk. Now, I don't know about you, but you know what I think of when I read that? I think of the Gospel of John. How does it begin? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you know, I misread that for years. Because I always thought that Jesus was the expression of God to us. And so that when Jesus was conceived, in the womb of the virgin, when he was born, began his ministry here, the Spirit came on him that he was God's Word to us. But if you look at John 1, you will find that John 1 is a rewrite of Genesis 1. Not a question in the world about that. So John is just updating Genesis 1. And so when he says, in the beginning was the Word, it's the same beginning that you had in the beginning, God said, let's make something. So the beginning is before there was anything. So before there was any creation or any creature for him to talk to, God was still talking, Father to Son and Son to Spirit and Spirit and Son to Father. And what you had 
in the inner life of God was a conversation. Now, you will notice the way this is used in Genesis. It's obvious in Genesis 1, when he says, let us make man in our own image. And then you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll find what God's doing is looking for a conversation partner. He wants a fourth person in that conversation. And he wants us to be in it. Not because he needs us, but because we need him. And you get the beginning of this expression of love where you love somebody not because of what he can do for you, but because of what you can do for him. And so you begin to get the foundation laid for that kind of thing. But in this passage, you will notice what Jeremiah says. The man cuts a tree down, a craftsman shapes it with his chisel, and a god is supposed to have value, isn't he? You wouldn't want to worship a worthless thing. So they take and they cover it with gold and with silver to give it worth. And the problem with an idol is you're the one who gives it its value. It doesn't have any value to give you. And then he says, a god ought to be a source of stability. So they nail it to the platform. And then they put wheels on the platform because a god's supposed to be available. And so Jeremiah says, we got the real thing. <laughs> we don't have to decorate him with work. All work comes from him. We don't have to nail him to anything. Everything that has any stability comes, that stability draws out of its relationship to him. And you don't have to worry about going and getting him. He is omnipresent everywhere and you can't get away from his presence. Now, uh, that's what you, you, you've got the beginning of that, you see. This laid down in the book of Genesis. Let me challenge you. Just for your own soul's sake. Start reading through Genesis and note every place where he says, and God said, and notice what happened. He is a speaking God, and that's what made Abraham who he was. God talked with him. That's what made Isaac what he was. God talked with him. That's what made Jacob what he was. And though it doesn't say it, I'm convinced that's what made Joseph what he was. Because how do you live the kind of life that he lived without that? Now, he made us and he can speak to us and he made us so we can hear and so we can respond. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that religion oftentimes can be the enemy of true faith. But I want to tell you something I've found in the last two years. You remember God spoke to Moses. He spoke to Moses in a burning bush. Moses turned aside to see this thing. This bush burned and was not consumed. And as he stood there, he heard a voice that said, Moses, Moses. I always love the fact that God calls your name twice when he speaks. <laughs> Moses, Moses. Just in case, Moses, you weren't paying attention to you I'm talking to. And you'll find that again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, he speaks and calls them, calls the name twice. But he says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Now, you know, one of the interesting things is, there's the beginning of the biblical concept of holiness. But that's not the first time the Hebrew root for holiness occurs in the Old Testament. It occurs twice before. One of them is when he hallows the seventh day. So the time is to move toward the holy, you see. But the second one is in that strange story of Tamar in chapter 38. You remember the story of Tamar? Have you read uh, the Joseph story before coming? You know, it always troubled me. <laughs> because here you get the beginning of the story of this incredibly pure man <laughs> who uh, just would not yield himself to lust and to uh, the flesh. You get it started, and the minute you get it started, bang, 38 begins, and you get the story of Judah 
uh, leaving his brothers and going down and living with the Canaanites and marrying a Canaanite girl. And then she, they have a son. And when uh, if you want to talk about ethnicity and ethnic purity, the Hebrews surely didn't have any ethnic purity because Judah, the man who gave us the word Jew, was married to a Canaanite. That would be like uh, Barak marrying Arafat's daughter, wouldn't it? But that's the kind of thing you had. Judah separated himself from his family. And he was living with the Canaanite. And that son died, and so he gave, according to the legal patterns of that day, he gave his second son to the Canaanite wife of the first son, Tamar. And you will remember that... uh, he was not willing to fulfill his, what in that culture was his legal responsibility. And Judah was unwilling to give his third son because he thought there was something wrong here and that son would be hexed and would die. And so he be dealt deceptive with his daughter-in-law. And then he's going down at a sheep shearing time, which was a festival, sort of like county fair time in that country. And... uh He's away from home and his family and his wife has died and he sees a holy woman. And the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for holy, to be holy is kadesh. You put an ah on the end of it and that makes it feminine. So a kadeshah is a holy woman. Three times Genesis 38 speaks of Tamar as a holy woman. You see, in Canaan, the temples were the brothels. And that's one of the ways you worship the Canaanite God. You'll remember that in Deuteronomy, Moses says, you cannot bring the offering of a homosexual priest or a prostitute priest. You cannot bring the the offering from a Tell a dog, as they call the homosexual priest, the male priest who used for for sexual purposes, or Kudeshah, a holy woman, the woman who was used for sexual purposes in the temples or in the sacred places to worship the gods. If you bring that into the house of Yahweh, you will be destroyed because he is holy. Isn't it interesting that in uh, the Joseph story, the word holy applies to a prostitute, a, re- a temple priestess. And now in Exodus 2, God says to Moses, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground because the holy one who's really holy is here. Now there you get some of the ambiguities you see of language. There are times when I think that our advance in the knowledge of God is determined by the creation of vocabulary. Words count, and meanings for words. And our language, apart from God, is so depraved that God has to save our language so he can save us, so he can communicate with us who he is and what he's like. So God, the Holy One, says to Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said to him, when I go tell the elders of Israel that I'm going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to turn them all loose, those elders are going to say, who's sending you? So he said, would you tell me what your name is? And so the voice out of the burning bush says, Oh, I'm I am. Now, your translation probably says, I am that I am. But I think that that's really a quotation mark in Hebrew. So what he's saying is, tell them, I am sent you. Do you know what happened when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint? That was done about 150 years before Christ. Now, the reason it was done was because more Jews spoke Greek than spoke Hebrew. And so in order for the Jews to be able to read the biblical text, read the manuscripts, and have it taught in the temple, 
they uh, needed a Greek translation. So the Septuagint was translated. The Greek, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Do you know how the Septuagint translates the Hebrew, I am? It translates he who is, ha'om. So it says, the Septuagint says, God said to Moses, tell the elders that he who is is sending you. Now what's the difference between I am and he who is? One's first person and the other's third person. Now do you know the difference between first person and third person? You know when you use the third person about anybody? It's when he's not present. There are three of you standing together. If you talk about one of the three in the third person, you're doing it, it's artificial to get a point across. And if you're talking to two people, it's just two of you, you're never going to call the other person he or she. You're going to say you. Now, here's my question. How easy is it to get God into the third person? What occasion ever arises when you're where you can talk about Him? Where will you ever find a moment in your existence when he's not present. And you know what the whole thrust of religion is? Normally, deals with him in the third person. There's a story from A.J. Gordon's life, the founder of the, what today is Gordon College and Gordon Theological Seminary that when he was pastoring, he had a dream one night. And in his dream, he was preaching. And as he preached, he noticed a rather strange-looking person back on his left on the end of an aisle. And the person looked different enough that while he's preaching, and it's interesting, it's a good thing a congregation doesn't know everything that goes on in a preacher's mind while he's preaching. Same way it's a horribly good thing that a preacher doesn't know everything going on in his congregation's mind while he's preaching. But while he's preaching, he's beginning to be conscious of that person watching and beginning to say, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? And suddenly it dawns on him, it's Jesus. And he's terrified. All the rest of his life, I'm told, I don't know whether this is true or not, but what I've been told is that he put an empty chair in the choir loft where he could see it from the pulpit. So that every time he preached, he was conscious, he thought, he wanted to preach acceptably to Christ. Christ for him was present. You know, I often wondered why it was that nobody ever finds Christ in a theology classroom. And the reason you never meet God in a theology classroom is you've always got him in the third person. That's what you usually have in Sunday morning church, isn't it? And God wants to get in the first person. Where it's you and he. And you don't have any escape. Now, uh, this is to me is what you've got in this thing. And God said. And when he speaks, it's first person, second person. It's not third person. He's not an object now. He's there. And you've got to face him. So I've begun to love the way Genesis lays the groundwork in a richness for what is to come in uh, the Scripture. Now, you get an interesting thing in Genesis that sort of, I think, may illustrate this. You know, the story of Isaac is very brief in Genesis. 
though you patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Isaac is the middle one between Abraham and Jacob. Abraham, the father, and Jacob, the one who gave the name to Israel <laughs> and gave the twelve sons, the twelve tribes to Israel. Now, uh, it's interesting that twice Jacob refers to the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. And somebody said it's interesting when God ceases to be a person to whom you're relating and a fear and apprehension in your existence. Is that one of the reasons there's no more about Isaac? I don't know. But for a lot of people, he's an apprehension and not a person with whom they are in vital communication and who, whose fellowship transforms their lives. So you begin to get this kind of demand in Genesis for that interpersonal relationship between those who worship God and uh, those who are called by his name and know him. Now, we mentioned earlier that uh, in Genesis you don't have a Bible, you don't have a church, you don't have a sacrificial system, you don't have a cult liturgy, you don't have uh, these means of grace that you and I, they're such a vital part of our life. Why is it that God gives us this picture without any of these? You know, I had a Sunday school lady in, uh, in a Sunday school back in Loudoun. <laughs> I preached for five years in the house with my back to a door face and 45 people over here in court. I could pat them all on the head, you know, while I was preaching. And Kate was right in the middle of that. And now she shows up here. But... Uh, you have in Genesis, you don't have these means of grace that we have. The Sunday school uh, teacher came to me. She taught a girl's class. And she said, Dennis, why under the sun didn't Jesus come in Abraham's day and save us all this messy Old Testament that we have to worry with? And, you know, I thought, good question. Why didn't he come in Abraham's day? If he had come in Abraham's day, we wouldn't know about him today. Bar none of providential circumstances in human history. There is a build-up that takes place in the Scripture so that when Jesus appears, we have some categories to understand him, some intellectual categories to grasp him so we can know him. But now, why in Genesis do you have this basic book? Our models were found, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Why without these? I think the reason is to let us know what is central in God's sight. That the essential thing, the essence of Christianity, is not the church. The essence of Christianity is not even the scripture. The essence of Christianity is not ritual, ceremony, baptism, Eucharist or Lord's Supper. The essence of Christianity is a personal relationship. As Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, and this is life eternal, that they may know you, the one true God, and know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is salvation? It's not a thing you get. It's Christ. It's God. It's a person. And you get him in that intimate personal relationship. Now, once that's seen, it's amazing how important the church becomes. Why are you interested in the fellowship of believers? Because when you go there, you find him in a way you don't find him in the privacy of your own solitariness. There's something about the fellowship of believers. There's a richness of his presence your heart cries for once you know him. Why the Bible? Now, you know, I don't know about other people, but do you know the place I find him best and most richly? is when I sit down with the biblical text. And I hate to say this, but if I had to choose between church and the Bible, I, I wouldn't make it without the Bible. And you know, the miracle to me is 
first chapter, my mind's wandering. Second chapter, not too bad. Third chapter, oh, this is pretty good. Fourth chapter, do I have to quit? Now, what is it? You sense him. And he speaks. Luther said, the scripture is the cradle in which you find the Christ child. Now, I love the concept behind that. But then, baptism. You know, baptism was meaningless to me. But do you know there are people in the world for whom it was the turning point in their lives? And you know, missionary from India? He had a businessman who got converted. And the businessman, after he came to faith, said, Now will you baptize me? He said, Yes. Will you baptize me next Sunday at church? He said, No. Well, he said, If not next Sunday, when? Well, he said, It's not the when, it's the where that I'm concerned about. And the Indian said, Well, where do you want to baptize me? Oh, he said, I want to baptize you in that pool in the middle of the market. Where? On market day. I want to baptize you there so that everybody that knows you will know that you've become a follower of Jesus. Now, uh, you think baptism meant something to him? Or take, the, for instance, the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but I've repented many times for how many times I've taken it. Worse than casually. I was sitting at the uh, dining room table on a Sunday at about 1.15. And I had had three services that morning. And I was delighted to sit down. And as I'm sitting there, the telephone rang. And uh, it was a lady from our community. We started attending a Bible class that I thought a ladies' Bible class, the first class that she came to. I'd been going about five minutes, and she raised her hand and said, you know, I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> that was the beginning of our friendship. <laughs> but uh, I remember the next week, at the beginning of the class I started, and I'd hardly gotten started. Up her hand went. I thought, uh-oh. Some of my older ladies had come to me and said, if your class is going to be like that, we don't want to come back. Uh, but uh, I thought it was coming. So I recognized her and she said, I just wanted to tell you, I went home last night and did some work and you were right and I was wrong. And about ten minutes later, her hand went up. Here we went at it again. She argued every step of the way. She was a member of the choir in a downtown Presbyterian church. So she was on the phone. She said, Dennis, can you come over? I said, you mean immediately? And she said, yes, please. So the tone in her voice, I went immediately. I walked into the entryway of a rather palatial home. And as I walked in, she was standing there, tears streaming down her feet. And I said, Betsy, what's wrong? And she looked at me and she said, oh, Dennis, I see you. I said, Betsy Pearson, what do you see? Oh, she said, first time in my life I see. I was sitting in the choir this morning. And the pastor took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. And for the first time I saw it. He wept. He said, he did it for me then. He did it for me. Now, you know, these means of grace are very important. But they're meaningless unless in them we come to know Him. And, you know, you can even slip into the code without ever having really come to know Him. I finished the session one night and when I finished, I sat down. And as soon as the session was closed, he very fine-looking person came to me, leaned across the table, and said, I think I see. I've never really met him, and I meet him tonight. 
He's a medical doctor. Epitaphs. You can know him. He's a speaking, talking God. He's a coming God who wants to come to us and wants to work within our lives and give us the grace and the blessings that come, always that come with his presence. That's what transforms human life. And so uh, he he wants to come. Now that's the importance of a time like this. Because you see, you take off a weekend. Uh, Don Mullen and I were with a doctor the other day who was making a decision about some possible service for Christ. And I love the way he responded. He said, you know, I just need to take three days off and go somewhere and get alone with God and find out what he wants me to do. And you know the way he said it? You would assume that he thought God could talk to him and that he could hear when he spoke and that he could come away knowing what he should do. And that's what God wants in my life. And he wants to come afresh to me and he wants to come afresh to you so that we are living in reaction, in relation to him and his last word to us and what he has to say to us. Now, uh, the interesting thing is when he speaks, it's always significant. It may be just the witness of the Spirit that your sins are forgiven and that you now are his child. You're not a stranger to him and he's not a stranger to you. He's not in the third person anymore. He's in the second person. He's there and it's the two of you together. Everywhere you turn, he's with you and you you rest in that. It may be that that's what he says to you. It may be that he has something specific he wants you to do. I was talking with a man whom I've known over a good many years and he's rather wealthy, and he's my age. I'd known him since he was 13, met him in a Bible class when I was 13, and so it's been a good friendship. And he looked at me, and he got real tender. He said, you know, Dennis, I've got some money I've got to get rid of before I die. And I need to have God tell me what to do with it. He said, you see, my father was a layman. I was his uh, business manager. He said, one day when I was young, he came in and said, son, there's a missionary, and he named the country. We've got to send him $115. And he said, you know, I thought that was sort of unusual. I didn't know about the man. My daddy didn't explain $115. And when I pushed him, he said, that's all I know. I just know we've got to send him $115. So he said, I wrote the check, shipped it off. He said, in about two weeks, we got a response. He said, the missionary said, thank you for your check for $115. I had a responsibility that I could not meet. And so one morning, I looked across the table at my children and said, we've got to sell your bicycle because we don't have the money to pay our debt. And he said, I knew and they knew that that would take them out of school because he had to have the bicycles where we lived to get to school. And he said, crush my heart. But there was no option. And he said, that day when the mail came, the check was exactly enough to meet my obligation. So this tough businessman sat there with the tears rolling down and said, Kinlaw, can God tell me what to do with my money? I said, yeah, you get close enough, you get in tune, and you can know. Now, let me ask you something. How much happier do you think when you are when you're living 
out of that kind of relationship than when you're just hoping that maybe it's all right. Now, I believe that the book of Genesis is here to let us know what is central. Now, all that comes later is very important. Very important. And we would be paupers without it. Abraham didn't know enough to be a monogamist. Tamar didn't know enough not to play the role of a prostitute. So the end result was, she's one of the mothers, progenitors for David and for Christ. God works with people where they are. The incredible thing is our knowledge. We ought to know him infinitely better. Could I close with a personal story? I think my grandson will permit me to share this with you. <laughs> you know, it's amazing um, what can take place in a family when Christ has some corner in it. My grandson graduated university and was not sure what he wanted to do and we had a conversation one day. And, uh, he looked at me and he said, he called me Papa. He said, Papa, if you take any discipline and pursue it farther enough, you'll be in philosophy, won't you? I said, yeah. doesn't matter which one you start with. Biology, history, sociology, psychology. doesn't matter which it is. The top degree is always a doctorate in philosophy. And he said, if you push philosophy far enough, you get into theology, don't you? I said, yep. Philosophy gives you the question, and the scripture and theology give you the answer. And he said, if you push theology far enough, you've got to have a center, haven't you? I said, yep. Well, he said, that's what I'd like to pursue, that center. So, uh, some months later, I got a email from him. He said, could I come spend my spring break vacation with you? Now, he's 23. I'm 78. I thought, what under the sun? His spring vacation lasted nine days. I thought, what under the sun are two 78-year-old people going to do with a 23-year-old grandson for nine days. And then I thought, what under the sun is he going to do with us? But I said, sure, come on. We sat down the first night. <laughs> he looked at me and said, Papa, I've become very interested in philosophy. I said, good. That gives you the question. That's the reason you know it needs the scripture because there's where you get the answer. Oh, he said, don't give me that line. I said, oh? Oh, he said, I know the Bible. <laughs> he said, I've been to Sunday school all my life. I graduated from a Christian university. I know the Bible. I said, I cannot tell you what a privilege it is to meet you. I said, I've been working at this thing for 65 years, and I think I'm on the margin of getting to the place where I can see a little of what it really is all about. It's such a privilege to meet you. I said, it's interesting, we read the Greek New Testament eight mornings. The other day I got an email from him. He said we had a bunch of people down here from the States, he's in Mexico City, teaching in a mission school. And he said, they asked me to do a devotion. So he said, I started with Moses, your hero. He said, Moses and I have a lot in common. Both of us know how to alibi to God. And then he said, went ahead and developed. And he said, you know, I've never done anything quite as exhilarating. He said, man, a guy could give everything he's got for that kind of stuff. Now, uh, I thought, what have you got? you got a young life that's opening up to God. Now, what will come out of that? I don't know what will come out of that. But I know this, the Lord never touches a life 
and leaves it the way it is. And do you know what the most significant thing in history is? It's not institutions. It's not political parties. It's not government. You know what the most in, most significant thing in human history is? It's persons who met God. What was the name of the Pharaoh when Joseph lived? Nobody knows. New York Times is not going to refer to him. But the New York Times last week reported on the burial place of Joseph. And who are the most significant persons in the news today determining it the most? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And Joseph is a part of that story. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of the story. It really is the only show in town. <laughs>